Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, we proudly bring to you Mormonism Live! Shut up and sit down. I know you're pushing buttons over there. What a great intro. I'm loving the intros you're coming up with, Bill. Yeah, the the crowd applause. If we could only have those 77 people who are with us already, and uh, and they were all screaming and yelling and clapping, plus the other couple of hundred who will be joining us here shortly. Um, what, a, what a fun week this has been to prepare for this. How are you doing, by the way? I am doing great. Thank you for asking, Bill. How are you doing? I'm doing exceptionally well. Life is good. Um, I, I thought maybe we could start tonight. And by the way, first off, thank you to everybody who's watching. There's 90 out there right now, and, and a few more will join us. We're going to talk tonight about another deception. I want to play a little quote here from the, the Brethren. This would be Elder Ballard and Elder Oaks. We've played this numerous times before, but I want to talk about this for just a moment. It never before. grows old. It, ne it, never, it never grows old. That's right. This this idea that the church is hiding something, that, which we would have to say is, Two apostles who have covered the world and know the history of the church and know the integrity of the first presidency in the Quorum of the Twelve from the beginning of time. There has been no attempt on the part in any way of the church leaders trying to hide anything from anybody. That's going to suffer a little bit tonight, RFM, that, that quote by the brethren. Um, they say there's this idea. There's this idea that we're hiding things. Where does that idea come from, Arif? I have I have no idea because obviously there's no truth in it. Otherwise, he wouldn't state it so emphatically. He wouldn't, he wouldn't be so emphatic if there wasn't demonstrable dishonesty. Or maybe I'm saying that wrong. If there was demonstrable dishonesty in the history of the church, he surely wouldn't be proclaiming that to the youth of the church. But there is this idea that they are hiding things, and he is explicit. That's never happened. He knows... He knows the leaders of the church all the way back to the beginning. Yeah, I knew he was old, but not that old. Yeah. So uh, let's start off tonight, RFM. By the way, thank you, listeners. Um, you know, let's let's set a goal tonight, maybe to raise a few funds. If we could get ten more recurring subscribers tonight, that would be great. Again, the amount doesn't matter. A couple bucks a month will be great. But it uh, it just shows that this, us that this is growing and and keeps us kind of putting the work in. Um, would you pull out your DNC for me, RFM? Me. Well, yeah, I just happen to have it right you here. You just so. happen to have it sitting there. It's in my triple covenants. Yes, would sir. You, would you find for me the 1886 revelation uh, by John Taylor? Uh, I got to imagine that would have been published. So it should be somewhere. DNC, maybe one. What do you think? One 1886, you say? Yeah, the 1886 John Taylor revelation. He was a prophet of the church, John Taylor. Well, I'll tell you, and I knew you were going to ask this question. So I spent the afternoon winnowing my Doctrine and Covenants, and I can't find it. The only thing I can find in the Doctrine and Covenants, at least as I have it here, uh, that was authored by John Taylor, is section 135, talking about the martyrdom of Joseph and Hiram. I don't find any. That was 1844, though. You're talking about 1886? 1886. Let me tell you, this was a fun week to prepare. This is one of those moments in time where normally 
RFM is teaching uh, me some new tricks. And on, on this occasion, it was him who didn't know this story. Back in 2015, I recorded an episode for Mormon Discussion Podcast where we talked about the trial of John W. Taylor. And uh, involved in that conversation was a conversation around the 1886 revelation by John, President John Taylor, I think fifth president of the church. No, be the fourth president of the church, right? Third? Sorry, right. third president yes. of the church. You're kicking my booty. So um, <laughs> I got to do something. Let me put this up on the screen. You're not going to find it because it was never published. It wasn't. It wasn't. So there it is. <clears throat> this document uh, we'll talk about in a moment about uh, how we came to know of its existence. But the 1886 revelation, let me just, you know what this is about. You and I both prepared for the, this week for this topic. I wondered if you could maybe help us understand the political climate inside the church that would lead to necessitate this document that never did make its way into the DNC. Okay, well, just a couple things, and I'll do it really briefly, because I think most of the listeners probably know this is 1886. It's even dated at the top September 27th, 1886. And this is the period of time when the church is really getting its took us kicked by the federal government over the subject and the practice of plural marriage. Um, you recall that the what was it? Oh, the church appealed it up to the Supreme Court in the mm -hmm. case of United States versus Reynolds. And the Supreme Court ruled it's, uh, ruled that, sorry, uh, First Amendment does not cover practicing plural marriage. So we are upholding the laws that have been passed by Congress trying to shut it down out there in the Utah Territory. So that was actually 1879 that that ruling came down from the Supreme Court. Of course, we all know that the first manifesto doesn't happen until 1890, which leads us to what on earth was going on in that intervening decade, basically the 1880s, and this is 1886. Right. And what's going on is, you know, you've got church leaders who are either hiding out, they're on the underground, as they call it, which basically means that they're hiding out in people's places, they're wearing disguises, they can't really appear in public. There was one instance where I think John Taylor wore a woman's dress in order to avoid being detected. Mm. And they just can't, uh, the church is not running uh, as usual, as you might imagine. And of course, the um, the federal government also passes the Edmunds Tucker Act, which means that unless the church stops practicing plural marriage, then the federal government is authorized to seize the assets of the church and particularly the temples. And that would be a bad thing, which of course led to the 1890 manifesto with Wilford Woodruff, but he's not president yet. In 1886, it is John Taylor. And um, I mean, he is surrounded by uh, bodyguards at this time. And in fact, they travel with him. He goes and stays in people's houses. The bodyguards are there to stay up at night and keep watch to make sure that the federales don't come bursting through the door and grab John Taylor because the leaders of the church are either in hiding or they're caught and they're spending some time in the federal prison like John Q. Cannon did for a while, I believe. So it's a very, very tense situation and things are very difficult and it's all over plural marriage. And the church is actually trying to come up with some way they have tried by hook or by crook to continue practicing plural marriage. And uh, the question is, is this pressure from the government going to be successful in stopping plural marriage? In other words, in other words, does the Lord want 
the Saints, at least in 1886, to stop practicing plural marriage. And I think that's the question that John Taylor proposes to the Lord. And then he gets this answer as a revelation from God, which he writes down. And that's that document. There's George Buchanan right there in the middle. He's the one in the striped suit. <laughs> you are you've set the you've set the the table for this, which is that polygamy, the, the church introduces polygamy and with Joseph Smith. Um, you know, maybe as early as whatever, 1831, I think. But most most of it becomes pretty kind of well-known, even though it is kind of in the shadows in Nauvoo in the 1840s. And the church had sacrificed a lot, and its members had sacrificed a lot to keep polygamy going. And as you pointed out around this time, John Taylor is uh, kind of hiding out at members' homes. And one of those members' homes is the Woolly Farm. And even, uh, I think we'll get to this later, but even Brian Hales acknowledges that uh, almost assuredly that is where John Taylor was on the yes. evening that that revelation is dated. I think uh, they raised sheep there at the Woolly Farm. Say, say that again. The, I think they raised sheep there. <laughs> Might have been. That's what the Woolies did, right. And uh, um, the so we'll get into that kind of story later, but let me set up kind of the 1886 uh, document. Uh, you're looking at it on the screen uh, this was a revelation that John Taylor uh, it received, and I only say that because both the believing side as well as the critical side of Mormon history acknowledge that this is almost assuredly John Taylor's handwriting. And there are other witnesses, which we'll get to, that knew about the document around the time that this happened. Um, but it appears as though they're on the John Woolley, if I'm not mistaken, or Lauren Woolley, uh, residents. I think both those men would have been there. Yeah. John Woolley was the father. It's his residence. Lauren Woolley is his son. Yeah. And then there would have been others, as you pointed out, bodyguards who, who watched over John Taylor. Um, Lauren Woolley was one of the bodyguards. Yeah. Yeah. Who stayed up all night, kind of just keeping watch over uh, President Taylor in his room mm -hmm. and uh, being just outside the door. And uh, the actual revelation here never gets published in the church. And, and some of this is understood only because Taylor is in hiding. There really isn't a chance to get together as a church to discuss these things, to put these things forward, and to get them published as uh, as actual revelations in the church. And there's also, I think, a, the good possibility that there may have been at the moment kind of an intention to just hang on to this and not publish it so that you could use it at some point going forward, but not be stuck having to deal with it if you published it prematurely, if that makes sense. Well, don't keep me in suspense, Bill. What does it say? I can't really read that handwriting from Yeah, here. there's no way we're going to read that. But I did uh, pull up a uh, writing of it on Wikipedia, which you can find. And uh, this is what it says. Uh, my Now, this is Jesus Christ himself's voice speaking. My son, John, you have asked me concerning the new and everlasting covenant how far it is binding upon my people. Thus saith the Lord, all commandments that I give must be obeyed by those calling themselves by my name unless they are revoked by me or by my authority. And how can I revoke an everlasting covenant? For I, the Lord, am everlasting, and my everlasting covenants cannot be abrogated nor done away with, but they stand forever. Have I not given my word in great plainness on this subject? Yet have not great numbers of my people been negligent in the observance of my law and the keeping of my commandments, and yet have I borne with them these many years, and this because of their weakness, 
because of the perilous times. And furthermore, it is pleasing to me that men should use their free agency in regard to these matters. Nevertheless, I, the Lord, do not change and obey. I'm sorry. I, the Lord, do not change in my word and my covenants and my law do not. And as I have heretofore said by my servant, Joseph, all those who would enter into my glory must and shall obey my law. And have I not commanded men that if they were Abraham's seed and would enter into my glory, they must do the works of Abraham. I have not revoked this law, nor will I, for it is everlasting. And those who will enter into my glory must obey the conditions thereof. Even so, amen. There was so much secrecy around this RFM that like there is a there is a really fair debate about what was the intentional use of this what is the meaning of this document but it seems to only make sense in light of what's going on in that moment which is plural marriage could do you have any thoughts on the document and its interpretation at this point i know we'll get into it further later on but is there any anything else you want to add to what john taylor seems to be writing down in the words of jesus christ to him on that night it is my understanding that an, at least an unofficial handwriting examination has been done on this document by whom I do not know. That seems to indicate that it was actually written by John Taylor. It is in his handwriting. Um, that doesn't seem to be very much disputed among the different parties related to this document, whether you're uh, trying to uh, interpret it in some other way or not. Um, so that's the main thing that I would say. I think it's very clear it's talking about plural marriage. That's obviously what it is that's being talked about to me. It may not say the words plural marriage, but everything else is plural marriage. New and everlasting covenant, uh, works of Abraham. There's obviously even quotes from section 132 referencing uh, what I said to my servant Joseph and then referencing uh, lines at the beginning of section 132. So I think it's very clear. There's a nice picture of John Taylor. Yeah, if you read a lot of this early documentation, John Taylor is one of plural marriage's biggest advocates. He is, there are people inside the church who are pushing him to get rid of plural marriage. There are uh, leaders in the church who are pushing for him to make a statement, to cling to it as if it will never end. And it does seem, though, that the wording in this document, the 1886 Revelation, really only makes sense if it's understood to be Jesus Christ coming down in this precipice moment to tell John Taylor, look, there's a lot of pressure on you. I get it. There's a lot of pressure on the church. A lot of things could go south, but this is my eternal covenant. You can't walk away from this thing. Mario, you're under a lot of pressure down here. <laughs> yeah. Is that Uchtdorf or is that Hans Matson? Uh, it was supposed to be, I think, Caribbean accent, but it may have sounded German. <laughs> okay. So, um, I don't want to get lost in, I don't want to get lost in the weeds here, but there is a couple of things we need to say. We we're talking about the Woolies home that this took place in. As early as 1891, the Woolies begin to spread word that um, again, uh, I think it's is it Lauren Woolley who's the son? Mm -hmm. And he is the bodyguard. And he begins claiming that he was at the home that night, which he probably was at the home that night when John Taylor received this revelation. And he tells the story about how uh, the room lit up. There was only one entrance in and out of the room and he was by the door. 
Um, there was a window, but he checks it in the morning and, and there's no sign that it was opened or closed. And he hears multiple voices inside the room, which he says is the resurrected or not resurrected, but the spiritual uh, post-death Joseph Smith as an angelic minister uh, coming to deliver a message. And um, does he say that Jesus Christ himself shows up in the room or is Joseph Smith acting as the mediator? This is where it starts getting a bit confusing. My my understanding, and you may know this, I think you know this subject better than I do, is that these stories that start coming out from Lauren Woolley are later than 1891. I think they're into the 1900s. They're substantially after the fact. They're after 1911, in fact, I believe. Yeah, 1912 you know, is the first time it's written down, but there are people who claim that Woolley's telling them the story as early as 1891. Oh, I'm sure there are. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. No, you're no. Uh, but he gives different accounts, and over time, the details get better and more specific, which is usually the opposite of what you would think. I know we don't want to get into the weeds, but yes, he starts uh, telling the story about how uh, there's a light on. Here's two people talking, but there's only one person in there, and it's John Taylor. The light's coming out from under the room. You know, it's it's uh, sort of like an early version of these uh, faith-promoting rumors that I heard when I joined the church back in the 1970s, except it would involve Spencer W. Kimball in the temple. You know, and he's in the Holy of Holies and the janitor can hear two people talking. It's really exactly the same story when I stopped to think about it. Yeah. I didn't know it had such a um, an established pedigree going back at least to this story. And John Taylor comes out in the morning and he says, oh, I just passed such a pleasant evening, a pleasant night talking with Joseph Smith. Yeah. And then he has a, an eight hour meeting. Right. And then his face is glowing. This is John Taylor's face is glowing. And while he's talking, he's actually levitating a foot or a foot and a half off the ground. According yeah. to these later accounts. Right. Yeah, it gets highly, uh, it seems highly embellished by Wooly and those who are standing with him. And I want to do something here, which is to recognize that the Woolies are tying this, uh, this account of theirs to the 1886 revelation. But the 1886 revelation isn't tied to the hook, hook or the hip of the Woolies. The the, the Woolies certainly tie their hip to the Revelation, but the Revelation stands on its own, and it's important to understand it. While many in the church weren't aware of the 1886 Revelation, and maybe even the leaders of the church weren't prepared to utilize it, it seems as though at the very same moment that this Revelation comes out, church leaders, John Taylor and those around him, begin authorizing uh, other leaders in the church. John Taylor's son, John W. Taylor, Matthias Cowley, uh, and others to continue the principle of plural marriage. And they begin to take the loyal members of the church and begin to say, hey, look, we're going to send you off. The government is becoming really difficult on us. We need to give the appearance that we are ending polygamy. In the meantime, we're going to send some of you to Canada, to Mexico, to other places in the United States even, and you're going to continue the principle secretly. Now, this isn't debated. You can ask any person who understands the early LDS history and, uh, and understands it well, and they will say, yep, this is what's going on. They send out these members to these various places, and if they get caught, these members are to respond that they're doing it themselves and that it's not the church telling them to do it. And um, it seems as though as you're sending people out to keep the principle going, you would have to give them some strong piece of something to give them some backbone to do it. 
1886 revelation, whether it was utilized or not, appears to be the perfect kind of thing to use. We just don't know because this wasn't published. It wasn't talked about. And we'll get to the first time that it shows up in uh, the historical documents. Um, but at least to recognize that the church created its own problem that comes about later on. I'm down here in Southern Utah, and I'm very familiar with uh, the Warren Jeffs group in Colorado City. There's a break off of their group, which is Centennial Park. They're a much softer, kind of more law abiding than what Warren Jeffs group was. And any, you take any of these prominent uh, members of those factions and they would tell you, look, we were sent to these places to keep the principle going. We were just doing what we were told. And the church promised these uh, members that at some point when the government, you know, laid off and, and eased up, that they would bring these people back and polygamy would keep going. And so they saw it as their sacred duty to keep polygamy uh, continuing, even as the church was publicly uh, saying that it was kind of uh, slowing it down or ending it. Um, but privately, the church absolutely was behind this effort to to continue plural marriage. Your thoughts, RFM, on that part of the history? Yeah, I will tell you that I was certainly aware of this 1886 revelation. But until you brought it up and I started doing research using mainly the links that you provided and a little bit of links, uh, research on my own, what I did not realize is that the significance of it isn't so much that the Lord God is saying that polygamy is not going to end. I mean, I think we can all understand that this was the the mind of the Lord or John Taylor in 1886, that we're not going to be budged. We're under pressure, but we're not going to be budged. And four years later, John Taylor's passed away. Wilford Woodruff, who is, by the way, the fourth president of the church, uh, issues the manifesto, right, and says, okay, okay, we're not going to enter into any more new uh, marriages, or at least the church isn't. But it was this research that showed me that really the most significant part of this historically uh, in that revelation, do you have that up there again? Oh yeah. Let me put it, um, let me put it back up here. It is, you want the, you want the actual wording. So there it yeah, is. Yeah. And can you, can you increase the size a little bit? Yeah. It's the, um, the free agency clause is really the most significant part of it, at least for purposes of our discussion tonight. It's toward the end there. Can you highlight that? You're right there. There you go. Yeah, because of the perilous times, right? And furthermore, it is more pleasing to me that men should use their free agency in regard to these matters. Now, that's significant. And later on, we'll find out that other church leaders found it significant as well right. in 1911, but we'll get to that. But what this suggests is, that there is a way being uh, proposed in this revelation for members of the church to use their free agency to continue the practice of plural marriage separate and apart from the authorization of the church. What's basically going on here in this time and actually for a substantial amount of time afterward is that what the church is doing is they have been really, really run, been run roughshod over by the federal government. And by 1890, they do the um, the first manifesto, or as TBMs do it, the manifesto. There's no second one as far as they, they know. But the, the first manifesto in 1890 with Wilford Woodruff. And then, if I can just give a little bit of historical context, right? Then um, 1896 rolls around, and 
Well, actually, they try and let me see here. Yeah, they become a state. Utah tries to seat a senator. It's B.H. Roberts. He's got three wives. There's a massive uh, rejection of that by voters. There's a petition with like seven million signatures. Said so we don't want him in the, the Senate. So they said, you're out. So then later on, they propose um, Reed Smoot, right? They propose Reed Smoot, who is not a polygamist. And Congress says, you know, we're not so sure that you guys are really sincere about this manifesto thing that you did in 1990. So we're going to have hearings on this issue. And they wouldn't seat him, right? They wouldn't seat him until this took place. Right. And so, uh, and actually there was a very good reason, as it turned out, that they thought that maybe the the LDS church leadership was, well, not being completely forthright in their statement that they're not going to do plural marriage anymore, and they hadn't been doing it. So they have hearings that last four years on this issue, if you can imagine that, four years. And the whole reason for it is if... Reed Smoot, even though he's not a polygamist, if he is believing that the leadership of the church is ordering polygamy to be practiced, which is a violation of the law at this point, and it's been upheld by the Supreme Court, then how should this guy be a senator when he's got to take an oath to uphold the Constitution and the laws of the land? There's a conflict there. They want to get to the bottom of it. And as part of this, they subpoena in President Joseph F. Smith. He became president of the church in 1901. He gets to um, Washington, D.C., and he's he's grilled quite extensively, and he admits that he's still cohabiting with his wives, that uh, which is not something he's supposed to be doing under the law, but he says it's a matter of honor for him to do it. And so he goes back. This is in March of 1904, by the way, when President Joseph F. Smith is grilled in Washington, D.C. as part of the Reed Smoot hearings. The following month in April of 1904, at General Conference, now, Joseph F. Smith gets up and says, he issues what's called the Second Manifesto, which is, um, you know, this time we really mean it. Basically, he says, okay, now we really mean it. And if any member of this church is found to be practicing plural marriage, then they're going to have to be excommunicated. Meanwhile, yeah. behind the scenes, apparently what's going on is that he is seeking to still find a way to continue practicing plural marriage, but it cannot be the church who's behind it. There's an attempt to decouple the authorization to practice plural marriage. And you, you've mentioned that. So that if somebody gets caught doing it, then they're doing it individually as an individual, not because they've been instructed to or ordained or whatever by church leaders. Yeah. So they're doing, there were some patriarchs as well that were given this power to go out and do it. It's sort of like a don't ask, don't tell. Here's the authority. It can only be given to trusted individuals, but they are supposed to not mention where they got it from because obviously if the person gets caught and gives up the fact that maybe the president of the church had authorized them to do this, then everything's going to blow up. And the federal government is going to come down with both feet on the church at this point. Yeah. So 1904, the second manifesto gets issued and word starts to get out that John W. Taylor, son of President Taylor, who has uh, who's now deceased and Matthias Cowley. Uh, who is an apostle. Both these men are apostles. John W. Taylor, son of the President Taylor, and Matthias Cowley. They when you are, said he's now deceased. What did you mean? John Taylor, President Taylor, is deceased. Oh, okay. And his son, John W. Taylor, is an apostle. Matthias Cowley is an apostle. And word starts to get back to the brethren. This is now years later. The second manifesto has been issued. And most of the top leadership, at least 
publicly, from what we can gather, their understanding is polygamy is over. And as they're getting rumors that um, among Taylor and Cowley, that those men are still um, authorizing to others that sealings, plural sealings, plural marriages be performed. They are taking on additional wives themselves. There's some rumors of that happening. And so the quorum of the 12 begins to seek out these two apostles to bring them back and to discipline them for not following the rules. So what do Cowley and John W. Taylor do? They simply resign as, uh, as members of the Quorum of the Twelve. And I would think they're still apostles, right? They, they don't give up their office, but they are resigning from the Quorum. It appears that's the case. Yeah. And, but, but that doesn't uh, get the brethren off their back. The brethren keep uh, reaching out to them, keep telling them that they're hearing that these rumors are – that these things are happening. And they eventually – get John W. Taylor to come in for a disciplinary court where he is going to sit with his peers and he is going to be accountable to whether he is continuing plural marriage um, beyond the second manifesto. And this gets kind of messy because we actually have the disciplinary uh, trial Documented. There is a document uh, that we have of this trial having taken place, and we get to read what all occurred in it. So I'm going to kind of put it up here on the screen. Um, before we get into reading a few sections, everybody probably wonders where we're going tonight. And there are lots of facets of this story. And I'm stammering a little bit because there are so many places we could go down RFM and, and talk about that are deeply interesting and I think would very much interest the listeners, but it's not the purpose of tonight's show. We really do want to make a couple of connections and then kind of help people understand how this document was interpreted and what the church's official statement on it was. But any thoughts here before I get started pulling out a few pieces of the John W. Taylor trial? Um, anything on your end that you want to kind of help us set up? Absolutely. Thank you so much. Yeah. You know, um, this is all kind of news to me, but I went back and I reviewed the church essays on plural marriage and the manifesto, and I began to see that actually this information is contained in the essays themselves. It may sound outlandish what I've been talking about, this decoupling from the church leadership versus individual responsibility, but that information is actually contained in the essays. If I can read just a couple of lines for you. Mm -hmm. Here's a line from the church essay. I understand this isn't available now. Is that true? <laughs> there are five of the of the contra most controversial gospel topic essays, which are offline at present, unless some people are telling me that if you log into your LDS account, you can then read them. But if you are not logged in, only these five, and they seem to be the most controversial ones, um, they don't show up on the screen. Yeah. Well, it's probably just a glitch. It's been going on for a couple of weeks now. Yeah. That'll happen. Yeah. That, yeah. So, so here's the thing. Okay. Uh, this one line, okay. Statement from the church essay and they write it in such a way that you actually sort of have to know what they're talking about in order to know what they're talking about. Here's the line. Only the church president held the keys authorizing the performance of new plural marriages period. Oh, wait, there's a footnote here. <laughs> footnote two, if you go to footnote two, after that blanket statement, right? 
Only the church president held the keys authorizing the performance of new plural marriages. And of course, that's reference to Doctrine and Covenants, section 132, verse 7, right? We went over that not too long ago. But then they add this in footnote 2. The church president periodically set apart others to perform plural marriages. Mm. Isn't that an interesting thing to put in a footnote? Yeah. So in other words, let's tell everybody the rule, but then let's in the footnotes where most people won't see it announce that there have been exceptions. Right. And some of those exceptions have to do with the patriarchs that we talked about, but they're not going to talk about that there. Now, let me find this other thing from another one of the, um, the uh, here it is, another one of the church essays. All right. Um, let me see if there's any here. You know, it's so funny, the things that they, they actually let slip. Uh, it's almost like uh, just shy of 14th birthday kind of stuff. Right. Uh, they say after the election of B.H. Roberts. No, no, no. Let's not do that. Uh, church president Lorenzo Snow, who was number which president? Bill, here's a hint. Uh, president Lorenzo Snow, I don't. You're going to visit five? Yeah. Okay. Church president Lorenzo Snow issued a statement clarifying that new plural marriages had ceased in the church and that the manifesto extended to all parts of the world. Counsel he repeated in private. Even so, a small number of new plural marriages continued to be performed. Notice the passive voice. Continued to be performed. Doesn't say by whom. And then they say probably without President Snow's knowledge or approval. And then it says after Joseph F. Smith became church president, and he's number six, in 1901, a small number of new plural marriages were also performed during the early years of his administration. Mm. So you see these things continue to be practiced. They're not going to really say a lot about it, but they are going to mention it. That good for them. And then it goes down to, um, let's see, the Reed Smoot hearings and Joseph F. Smith being called to testify. When questioned about new plural marriages performed since 1890, President Smith carefully distinguished. Listen to this. This is in the essay bill. President Smith carefully distinguished between actions sanctioned by the church and ratified in church councils and conferences and the actions undertaken by individual members of the church. Mm. Quote, and then this is quoting uh, him. There never has been a plural marriage by the consent or sanction or knowledge or approval of the church since the manifesto. That's what he testified to mm. in 1904. And then the essay goes on to comment on this, Bill. This is amazing to me. Because all of a sudden, it's all it's like all the pieces are starting to slip into place now. His testimony, President Joseph F. Smith's testimony, the essay says, conveyed a distinction church leaders had long understood. So they're saying church leaders understood this long before 1905 when Joseph F. Smith is testifying this. The manifesto removed the divine command for the church collectively to sustain and defend plural marriage. It had not, up to this time, prohibited individuals from continuing to practice or perform plural marriage as a matter of religious conscience. Mm. Isn't that amazing that's there? What, what does that mean to you now? Yeah, it goes, it goes unsaid there, but once you read the history, including the John W. Uh, Taylor trial from 1911, it becomes clear that the church really did initiate, authorize, and encourage these men to go out and to continue the principle while 
publicly going like, hey, we're not part of this. We're not touching this. But if, if our members do that, then like, who are we to stop them? Right, exactly. So, and from the church's point of view, I mean, this is a command from God. They've got to continue it. They've got to continue it. They've got to continue it. And they've done it. They pushed it as far as they possibly can. The federal government was on the verge of seizing all their assets. But the amazing and interesting thing to me is that even after that, they continued to do it. But they had to distinguish between the church authorizing it and allowing people to act as individuals or what is called in the 1886 revelation, their free agency. Yeah. And so we get to this 1911 trial, John W. Taylor sitting in the room with his peers, the other apostles who now constitute the current quorum of the 12. And it includes um, Orson F. Whitney and David O. McKay, who are newly called because Taylor and Cowley resigned in 1905. The church called two new or two new apostles plus another apostle had died. And so they called a third person as well. And I can't remember what the name was, but Orson was F. Whitney. Richards? I don't think so. I don't remember. Okay. Um, but that was the Grand Richards death. Maybe. And then, oh, yeah, the death. So then um, Orson F. Whitney and David O. McKay are newly called apostles. They're not polygamist. They are kind of new to all of this. There, there's kind of mixed understanding in this room because some of them understood polygamy to end in 1890. And some of them understood polygamy to end in 1904. And some of them also kind of understand that this is maybe a little more messy and complex. So as they go through the trial with John W. Taylor, and I would, again, encourage people, go to Mormon Discussion, episode number 203, The Life and Trial of John W. Taylor. And it will it will open up the entire trial so that you can understand everything that's going on there. But for the purpose of tonight, we get to this moment in the trial where they're ready to discipline John W. Taylor, and he reaches in his back pocket, and he pulls the 1886 revelation out, and he throws it on the table, and he says, what about this? And um, they proceed to read it. So if on the trial here, it's page two. Um, they read the revelation, and then they begin to ask John W. Taylor, because now here's this new evidence, that if this revelation is real, and if John W. Taylor's telling the truth that he has been authorized by people above him to keep the principle going, then how in the hell can we punish John W. Taylor for doing what he was told by the president of the church to do? Right. And if I can bring up just a couple of things, there's two reasons that they're calling John Please. W. Taylor back after 1906 and he's resigned. Yeah. And he's living off by himself. He even says in this uh, hearing, he doesn't go to church anymore. Because if he goes, people want him to talk because he's John W. Taylor. I mean, President Taylor's son is mm -hmm. famous. He used to be an apostle, still is an apostle, but not a member of the Quorum of the Twelve. And he doesn't want people to be asking him questions because the two reasons that they're calling him up is because apparently he had entered into a plural marriage with uh, his secretary. Uh, I'm guessing it's a secretary. They call it his typewriter, that he married his typewriter. Uh, but uh, I think that's the term they're using for a secretary. And, and... There's another thing going on too, which is that they had busted a patriarch, who not the church patriarch, but a patriarch out in the church who was uh, performing plural marriages. And they said, why do you think you can perform plural marriages? And he kind of gave up John W. Taylor as the guy who had told him he could. Yeah. So they want to question him about that as well. Yeah. So um, he pulls the revelation out, they read it, and now there are men in the room who don't 
up until this moment, they don't get that there may have been authorizations after 1890 and they sure as hell don't get that there might be authorizations after 1904. So on page three, can you see that on the screen, RFM? Is it, I is can. it big enough for you to be able to read? I've got the highlighted section. John W. Taylor asked Brother Lyman, who is the president of the Quorum of the Twelve, I believe. Right, and it's just the Quorum of the Twelve. The first presidency is not here. Yeah, but but let's also own here, there are certain people on in this Quorum of the Twelve. There is, again, David O. McKay, George Albert Smith. Um, Heber uh, J. Grant. Uh, uh, yeah. Is it H.W. Ivins? Yeah. Henry W. Ivins. Okay. H.W. Ivins. That's another name to remember. Uh, Heber J. Grant, who becomes president of the church as well as George Albert Smith later on. And then our good old friend, Joseph Fielding Smith, who is the son of the president of the church at this moment, Joseph F. Smith, sixth president of the church, by the way, RFM. That's the one I always do remember. Because <laughs> uh, it's easy. It's the sixth letter of the alphabet. So F. Don't forget um, the F. And so John W. Taylor asked the president of the Quorum of the Twelve, Brother Lyman, what he thinks of the revelation, that uh, the 1886 revelation to John Taylor. Would you read that first highlighted section? Sure. Uh, John W. Taylor says, um, Brother Lyman, what do you think of the revelation to my father? Yeah, after he's produced it and given it to everybody to look at. Yep. President Lyman says, if you ask me if I believe in the plurality of wives, I would say that I believe it is true and will always be so. So mm. in other words, it's sort of agreeing with that part of the revelation. Yeah, he but thinks Brother Lyman, President Lyman of the Quorum of the Twelve, also seems to indicate that he understands the 1886 revelation as speaking about plural marriage. Right, and they ask... Uh, John W. Taylor, where he got, and he says he found in his father's effects after he had passed away that it was on his desk. Yeah. I think that they understand that John W. Taylor is a man of integrity, and they're not questioning the veracity of this document. It's actually having been written by uh, John Taylor. But uh, President Lyman goes on to say, but the Lord may suspend the practice of it, and how much of the responsibility remains with the people and with the government I don't know. Now, he seems to indicate there that he understands that the church is not going to take responsibility for it, that the members are on their own when they do it. Uh, he's been in, the, you know, he's the president of the Quorum of the Twelve. He's been there long enough. Nod, nod. Wink, wink. He's been there long enough to know kind of what was going on during this time frame. Yes. Yeah. So let me find the next one here. This is going to be page four. And uh, I just need to do a little search here. So this will be... Um, well, you go ahead and search for it because I think this is wonderful because when you read through it, what John W. Taylor is insistent on is that he has the authority to do this and that it's still proper to do under certain conditions. And he hints very broadly that it was President Joseph F. Smith who gave him this authority, not by laying on of hands, not by putting anything in writing, God forbid, but simply by telling him that he can do this. He can go out and he can perform plural marriages, but, you know, don't let me know. And in fact, when I read this transcript, it sounds like John W. Taylor is playing the game of how can, how do I say that President Joseph F. Smith gave me this authority without saying that Joseph F. Smith gave me this authority? Yeah, you. I would, again, encourage everyone to go back and read the trial. John W. Taylor is doing everything he can to get these men to stop asking questions because he he is 
uh, indicating to them, if you keep asking me and you force me to answer, it's only going to incriminate other people in the church who are doing what the president of the church asked them. And it, it could even go so far as to incriminate the president of the church. And there's a point where they're like, your father? And he's like, no, like the guy down the hall who's running it today. <laughs> Not John Taylor, no. Right, right. Um, it's so first, obvious what he's saying that one of the apostles uh, calls him out on it and says, I don't like how you're implying that Joseph F. Smith gave you this authority. Yeah, but nobody wants to walk out the door and bring President uh, Smith in to, to answer the questions, do they? Apparently, nobody does what is the obvious thing that if they know and they do that John W. Taylor is insinuating strongly he got the authority from Joseph F. Smith, the president, it seems to occur to nobody just to walk down the hallway and ask Joseph F. Smith if that's true. And there's even a moment where they're kind of trying to figure out the younger apostles and the older apostles are kind of trying to figure out what to do with John W. Taylor since he pulled this revelation out. And they end up kind of ceasing the meeting for a moment, ending it, and then readjourning uh, at some later point. And then later. the tone of the meeting is a little different at that point. At that point, they no longer want to ask John W. Taylor about this revelation. They want to really stick to, did you do these things or did you not? And let's just dish out the punishment. Yeah, and I love the part where David O. McKay, the new kid on the block, actually asks the question point blank to John W. Taylor and says, well, I want to know who gave you this authority. And John W. Taylor's going, I'm not going to tell you that. Yeah. And in fact, if I did tell you who it was who gave me this authority, you would have a hell of a time. The church would have a hell of a time in the state of Utah. Yeah, and he even tells them in the trial, he goes, look, just, just this morning, I was over at President Smith's office for three and a half hours, and we chatted. And I love the name dropping. Yeah, here I am. Here I am now. And uh, and I would suggest we stop asking questions. Mm -hmm. um, let's read this next part. So would you read this one to uh, RFM? President Lyman, again, president of the Quorum of the Twelve. Um, president so Taylor is trying to defend himself. And then President Lyman comes in with this answer, which also, again, is indicating something about the revelation. OK, this is what the people have done and rejected the law. That is what the people have. Let me see. What is John W. Taylor saying for that? I would prefer not to answer as I, as it would lead to something else. My view is that the Lord was anxious to put everybody upon his own responsibility and take the responsibility from the church. President Lyman says that is what the people have done and rejected the law of plural marriage up to the issuance of the manifesto. It was never taught that it would be given up. I didn't think it would for a minute. Still, I believed the manifesto of President Woodruff was from the Lord. The law will stand forever, but the practice was discontinued. So they're still talking about the continuing validity of the 1886 revelation that John W. Taylor has produced. Right. They're trying to have it both ways, right? Like they're saying, like, look, we, we told people that plural marriage would never end. So it's not going to. And we have to end it because otherwise the government's going to give us a real fit. So we have to split it up that the members get to practice it still, but the church isn't authorizing it. But it is the church that sent the members out to continue. The principle simply by them acknowledging this owns that they're trying to figure out some middle way. And that was the compromise that they came to. Would you read this next one here by President Lyman? Yes. And like you said, what makes it more confusing is that there are apostles here who don't know mm -hmm. about this. It's happening Never outside their knowledge. Yeah. And there, there are doubtless apostles here who do know about it as well. Including President Lyman. Probably. Uh, President Lyman says, I believe the Lord expects us to keep our word with the government and with the people. 
He referred to President Snow's remarks when he was selected president of the church by the Council of the Twelve. And President Lyman says, I have no fault to find with the revelation. So that's, he's saying, I have no fault to find with the 1886 revelation that you just produced. Yeah. Nor could he if he's aware of it and knows it's legitimate, right? Right. And he takes the position, which would be very common, which is, yeah, that's what God said then. But then he changed his mind four years later. Yeah. So at least he waited four years and not just not three and a half. Not three and a half. Right. At least the whole four. Right. Uh, President Lyman, when did you find this revelation? John W. Taylor found it on his desk immediately after his death when I was appointed administrator of his estate. So now I'm going to move to page five. And uh, A.W. Ivins, who lives for quite a ways uh, longer. uh, Let me just see if I can find the right spot. Uh, I think he ends up in the first presidency with Joseph F. Smith. Yeah. Anthony Ivins. Uh, Let's see here. I'm looking for where... Uh, Ivan says, do you know how extensively this revelation? That's right there in the middle. Yeah. So uh, A.W. Ivans says, do you know how extensively this revelation has been circulated in times past and has guided people in their actions in this regard? So he's trying to get to the bottom of it. Is the 1886 revelation the impetus for how we, the church, handled things from 1886 to 1904? And uh, would you read his answer? John W. Taylor says, and once again, this is all happening in 1911. Brother Joseph Robinson came to me and asked for a copy of it upon the suggestion of Brother Cowley. That's Matthias Cowley. And he got it from Brother Badger. Brother Joseph F. Smith Jr., by the way, that's Joseph F. Smith, the apostle. Yeah, Brother Joseph, Joseph F. Smith Jr., Joseph also, Fielding Smith. Yeah, Joseph Fielding Smith, right. Sorry, thank you. Also got a copy. But I don't know how many have got copies from these. So according to John W. Taylor, there are several people, at least whom he names, who have copies of this. And of course, this is before mimeograph or Xerox. And you would have to actually handwrite out a copy of the revelation yourself and take it with you. And Joseph, Joseph Fielding Smith had a copy. And Joseph Fielding Smith himself will confirm that later on. Uh, but, you know, there's a Joseph Robinson, there's Brother Cowley, there's Brother Badger. There's several people that he's talking about who have copies of this. Yeah, now I'm just trying to find the next line. I apologize. I'm trying oh. to do this kind of in real time. And then John W. Taylor adds, as he must, that I don't know how many people got copies from the copies that these gentlemen got. Right. So we don't know how many copies are out there, according to John W. Taylor. But we're going to get some clarification here. And this is this is to me the most important line in the entire document when we get to it. But I want to get one more line in before we do. Um, Based their belief, let's see here. Based their belief. So this is, yeah, so A.W. Ivins, he says, I asked, um, uh, they're talking about where these copies came from and how they got, interpreted and how they got utilized. And A.W. Ivan says, I asked this question because I've heard some of the brethren interpreted this revelation in this way. He's heard that some of these, before this meeting, he's heard that some of these brethren interpreted this revelation in this way. And he would like, he goes, I would like to find out to what extent they had the endorsement of the church in view of this revelation and what was the reason those brethren went to Canada and Mexico? Do you know what they based their belief upon as they seem to be sincere? 
Whether it was from, oops, sorry, whether it was from this revelation or from the president of the church or from what ground was taken that they would come in contact with the law of the land and still went out. I would like to know, Brother Taylor, what he knows about this and if they were justified in it. So um, I just want to recognize that as A.W. Ivan says, this 1886 revelation is in their milieu. They're aware of it. They recognize that some people who were who were told by the church to go out and continue the principle are referring to this being the motivation for doing so. And he's trying to get to the bottom of it. Yes, he is. And notice John W. Taylor's dodge. President Smith has come out on numerous occasions with the statement that there have been no marriage of a marriages of a polygamous nature solemnized with the approval of the church. But, hey, wait a minute. Why wouldn't it be with the approval of the church? Who was giving the approval then, RFM? It has to be done on the side. There has to be a shadow government created because if the church is doing it, then there will be a hell of a time for the church to pay in the state of Utah. And what position in the church was in charge of authorizing these plural marriages? There's only one on the earth at any given time, and it's the president. Except that he gave it to the patriarchs. Yes. Yeah, as as shown by footnote in the gospel topic essay. And so once the president of the church goes, okay, patriarchs, you're in charge of authorizing these. I no longer am going to. You've given up central command. Yes, you have given it up. And John W. Taylor is apparently one of those individuals that was believed to be trustworthy enough to be given this authorization. So he says, um, he continues, John W. Taylor, he, President Joseph F. Smith, he stands at the head of this dispensation at this moment and has adopted that policy. And as far as I am concerned, I don't want to come in conflict with President Smith on this proposition. I don't know what others have taken from this revelation. If the revelation is true, it would certainly impress me that the church was relieved of responsibility in this matter and the responsibility placed upon the individual. There's that free agency part of it. That's what everybody's focusing on. Yeah. So this is, to me, the money line. I want to play this yeah. quote one more time from the audio. Um, this this idea that the church is hiding something, that, which we would have to say as two apostles who have covered the world and know the history of the church and know the integrity of the first presidency in the corner of the 12 from the beginning of time, there has been no attempt on the part in any way of the church leaders trying to hide anything from anybody. Joseph Fielding Smith. Now that line's going to come in, that audio bite's going to come in here at the end, and it's going to be crucial to kind of reconciling what all is going on. Joseph Fielding Smith again, an apostle whose dad is down the hallway as the president of the church. He acknowledges that John W. Taylor's telling the truth. He says, it is true. I obtained a copy of this revelation from brother Rodney Badger. By the way, I spent about an hour trying to figure out how Rodney Badger got a copy of this revelation. He was in the presidency and maybe even the president of the Young Men's Association back then. But I still can't figure out how he came in contact to be the guy who got trusted with the copy to spread it around. But he, but Joseph Fielding Smith admits, I obtained a copy of this revelation from brother Rodney Badger. He let me take the original 
and I made a copy and filed it in the historian's office. This was but a short time ago. Mm-hmm. Now, we're going to figure out why this is important. But let me, I want to note a couple of things, and we mentioned it in brief passing. We're going to get to the year 1933 here in a minute. And it is important to recognize that there are certain men who were in the Quorum of the Twelve in 1911 at this trial who are present by the minutes of the council and by their own uh, uh, entering their own questions and comments during the trial. So um, on the minutes of February 22nd, 1911, you have Heber J. Grant who will become the president of the church and will be the president of the church in 1933. So he heard all of this stuff in the trial. Is that what you're saying? He heard all of it. He's in the minutes on February 22nd. He's in the minutes on March 1st. And he's in the minutes on May 10th. He is there for the whole damn thing. And you also have David O. McKay. So Heber J. Grant, David O. McKay, George Albert Smith, A.W. Ivins, and Joseph Fielding Smith. All five of those men are alive when we get to this moment in 1933 that we'll talk about. But these five men are living during both moments and they are present and counsel sought after on both occasions. These five men knew there was an 1886 revelation, whether they believed it legitimate, whether they believed it was used for the reason John W. Taylor says will matter little when we get to it. It is that they were there. They know that that document was pulled out of John W. Taylor's pocket, thrown on the table. They went back and forth trying to figure out how to frame it in the as the context of this disciplinary court. And um, Joseph Fielding Smith, with all these men present, acknowledges that he had a copy and he filed it in the uh, church historian's office. Right. Now, RFM, what do we know about Joseph Fielding Smith and his tendency to file things in the church historian's office? Sometimes they go to a very special place in the church historian's office called his uh, personal safe. Yeah, his personal safe. And what kind of things have been put there before? Well, the 1832 account of the first vision. Yeah. The seer stone. Yeah, the seer stone. There was so much stuff. There's so much paper in his safe that I imagine he used the seer stone as a paperweight. Yeah, it wouldn't. You told me this morning it wouldn't be on the bottom and the paper is kind of sitting on top rounding over. It would be all these papers, these things he's hidden. And there are other documents, too. I was telling you this morning that we were talking about other things. And if somebody knows them, if you want to put them in the comments, it maybe you'll remember myself or RFM talking about these in the past. But there are other things that Joseph Fielding Smith hid in the church historian's office. And the seer stone would have been the paperweight on top of all of these. Um so now let's get to kind of the wrapping up part of this. Um, again, recognizing those five men were at both occasions. This is the moment we've all been waiting for. Yeah. So what I want to get to is kind of the modern context of how this revelation is perceived. Modern simply meaning long after this 1886 revelation occurred. And I want to start first with Fair Mormon's approach. Fair Mormon, um, their argument, by the way, they acknowledge this probably is a legitimate revelation in terms of John Taylor receiving it and writing it down. They don't really question the provenance or the authenticity of it. But their argument is it doesn't really matter because John, because John Taylor in this revelation is not writing about 
uh, plural marriage, but instead is either speaking about marriage generally, which could exclude plural marriage, or it could mean just the gospel of Jesus Christ with all of its saving ordinances. But RFM, does that make any sense in light of what's going on in 1886? Well, no, of course it doesn't make any sense because why would John Taylor be so concerned about just regular marriages, civil marriages continuing? They were never in jeopardy. Yeah. When when you read the trial of John W. Taylor, when you understand the context that RFM shared at the beginning of this episode surrounding 1886 and prior, when you understand what the church is up against with the U.S. government, when you understand what is at risk that they could lose, and the only thing being debated is whether we keep or whether we let go of plural marriage, the 1886 revelation doesn't seem to have any room to mean anything else. Uh, it seems to be the final word by Jesus, Jesus Christ himself on the continued practice of polygamy. And that's how everyone in that trial of 1911 seems to understand it. Nobody wants to kind of throw that revelation under the bus, and they're all choosing their words carefully. To have Jesus four years later contradicting um, himself and creating a false prophecy, by the way, if Jesus says polygamy will never end, and it ends, you have Jesus essentially word coming not to pass, right? Um, that would be absurd. Also, the 1886 revelation only makes sense in terms of why Jesus would deliver such a message at that moment. Why is he traveling all the way from a planet near Kola to come down into the room at the Woolly Home and talk to President Taylor all through the night, or to have Joseph Smith as an angelic minister go into that room and discuss that revelation and, and make sure that these men know this is serious business going on. And the church in that very moment begins sending people out to Canada, to Mexico, to the U.S. to keep polygamy going. This 1886 revelation only makes sense uh, if it's talking about plural marriage. I want to turn some time over to you. Brian Hales wrote a paper about this. Um, would you mind sharing with us uh, some of the context of his approach, as well as I think uh, you wanted to share his conclusion. Yes, Brian Hales, who is probably one of the most knowledgeable people on the planet with regard to the history of plural marriage in the LDS church, and has written a, a great deal on the subject. Um, he wrote a paper about this 1886 revelation, and he basically, he doesn't... Uh, He's okay with the revelation being authentic. He doesn't really challenge it. And if you read the transcript from the 1911 trial of John W. Taylor, none of the apostles challenged the authenticity of the revelation. They yeah. just question whether it's still uh, still valid in the sense of did God suspend it four years later, suspend the practice of plural marriage? Or um, is it something where, um, well, I think that's the main thing that they talk about, isn't it? Yeah, that that it's uh, it's it was valid then, but it's not valid after yeah, 1890. Just to make note that they they knew it existed and they seem to see it as one of maybe several plausible, uh, tangible touchstones that would have led to how the church directed its members to continue polygamy without the church's authorization. Right. And by the way, even though it sounds strange to have prophets, at least today, receiving revelations. <laughs> Well, it, it does, doesn't it, though? I mean, it's like, uh, saith the Lord, I'm talking to you, you know, and having it written down. Um, this was not uncommon for John Taylor. Mm -mm. This is not the only revelation that he received in, in this type of way. So it's not like it's unusual. 
And he had several revelations that went unpublished just like this one. Exactly. Um, there were four or five of them. Yes. Um, so Brian Hills writes his paper and it's very interesting because what he does is uh, he makes arguments against this uh, paper. I'm not going to go through them. One of which is a, a very hyper legalistic interpretation of the language used in this revelation to try and show that, you know, plural marriage, it's not necessarily the everlasting covenant that's talked about there. Uh, plural marriage is just part of the everlasting covenant. It could be talking about other parts of the everlasting covenant as if baptism, you know, just regular baptism of members is part of the everlasting covenant. And as if God had to assure uh, John Taylor that baptism wouldn't stop. I mean, baptism was never on the line for stopping. It was plural marriage that was on the line for stopping. So he gives what I think is, at least to me personally, an unpersuasive argument in that regard. He also then attacks the, um, or tackles, I should say, analyzes the different stories that arose to explain the miraculous providence and circumstances surrounding this revelation, the woolly uh, stories. And he, I think he does an okay job of uh, debunking those and showing that this doesn't make sense. And these people weren't here at this time and all these other kinds of things. Right. So I think it is an okay job there, but what he does at the end is he says this, he says that the problem is, and then he talks about this 18. Oh, have we talked? I can't get to this until we talk about the 1833 first presidency. And statement. Let's, and let's go straight to that, which is okay. let me put this up on the screen. Okay. And let me change uh, our picture here. So um, in this is right here. Wikipedia, by the way, you can find this in um, talked about in Brian Hale's paper. You can find this in other places online. There's no debate that the church issued a first presidency statement. Uh, and I, I did the hard work. You actually kind of uh, kind of nicked me a little bit, Arvin. This was kind of funny. Um, I was trying, I took all of the men who were alive on both occasions and the men who were part of this 1933 thing. And I tried to figure out by who lived when and when they were called and who died. And I narrowed the window down to like, like March of 1933 to July of 1934. And then you messaged uh, the next day and said, I've got the date for you. It's June 17th. 1933 you found that i think in brian hale's paper correct yeah brian hale's mentioned the date it's a very long paper yeah. but i saw it in there and i thought you know you went through all this detective work to figure out it must have happened shortly after april of 1833 just based upon who's alive and who's not you're like uh, sherlock holmes there figuring this out and i said yeah it was june of 1933. Of the first presidency in the corner of the 12 from the beginning of time, there has been no attempt on the part in any way of the church leaders trying to hide anything from anybody. By the way, before you read this, Bill, can I just set this up further? Because now it's 1933, 1933. It's substantially later than this 1911 trial. In fact, I think it's 22 years later, right? Mm -hmm. But what's been going on in the meantime is that John Woolley 
has been making hay out of this, telling his stories about the provenance, the miraculous stories about the levitating John Taylor with the glowing face and the all night tete-a-tete with Joseph Smith in his bedroom, which sounds worse than I meant it to, but, um, but he, um, they're, they're going off here and they're doing this stuff. And the church is, is pulling their hair out over the subject because now there's becoming this real animosity between the church and these fundamentalist Mormons who continue to practice plural marriage and saying that they got their, their authority through this, this shadow government line that was created by the president of the church and perhaps continued by Joseph F. Smith. But they decide we've got to deal with this. We've got to take care of the problem. And what they end up doing is issuing this statement where they're basically going to engage in a massive cover-up. Yeah. And they give this statement, as you're pointing out, in response to the Woolies. It is the thing that's frustrating them. The Woolies are constantly using the 1886 revelation as the backbone of their story. And and the other trouble is, again, those five men are alive. So in this first presidency statement, it's signed by Heber J. Grant. He was there in 1911 at the trial of John W. Taylor. A.W. Ivins, he was there at the trial of of John W. Taylor. Uh, George Albert Smith and David O. McKay are in the Quorum of the Twelve at this time. And Joseph Fielding Smith is not only an apostle, but he is the church historian called in 1921. And here's what they say. It is alleged on September 26, 27, 1886, that President John Taylor received a revelation from the Lord. The purported text is given in publications circulated apparently by or at the instance of this organization, fundamentalist. As to this pretended revelation, it should be said that the archives of the church contain no such revelation. The archives contain no record of any such revelation, nor any evidence justifying a belief that any such revelation was ever given from the personal knowledge of some of us and the uniform and common recollection of the presiding quorums of the church from the absence in the archives of any evidence whatsoever justifying any belief that such a revelation was given, we are justified in affirming that no such revelation exists. Let me read Joseph Fielding Smith's words one more time. Would you please? At the 1911 trial, Joseph Fielding Smith said, it is true. He's talking, he obviously knows it. And he's also telling the other four men who will still be alive in 20-something years as the church over the next 20-something years deals with the Woolies in the 1886 revelation. He says, it is true. I obtained a copy of this revelation from Brother Rodney Badger. He let me take the original and I made a copy and I filed it in the historian's office but this was but a short time ago this this idea that the church is hiding something that, which we would have to say as two apostles who have covered the world and know the history of the church and know the integrity of the first presidency in the quorum of the 12 from the beginning of time There has been no attempt on the part in any way of the church leaders trying to hide anything from anybody. (laughs) I don't see how this could possibly be correct because the first presidency statement from 1933 says, as to this pretended revelation, it should be said 
that the archives of the church contain no such a revelation. The archives contain no record of any such a revelation, nor any evidence justifying a belief that any such a revelation was ever given. And that's why it occurs to me that maybe the 1832 account of the first vision was not the first thing that Joseph Fielding Smith hid in his safe. No, he was the right man for the job, wasn't he? He was pretty he, damn good at hiding things. He was. He's the fixer. <laughs> he is. And you have these guys collectively bullshitting and lying out of their ass. Right. So, and the second thing, the second thing, which I think you're going to get to, right? Five of these people were there, including two of the signatories of the first presidency statement, Heber J. Grant and A.W. Ivins, who both were present in 1911, saw John W. Taylor pull the revelation out of his pocket, put it on the table. They had a great deal of discussion over it. Nobody challenges whether it's a revelation. And yet in this first presidency statement from 1933, not only can they not find it in the archives, they also say from the personal knowledge of some of us, and I think that by that, it means those of us who were alive 22 years ago, right? At from least the, those five men, right? Yes, from the personal knowledge of some of us, from the uniform and common recollection of the presiding quorums of the church. Hold that on means a minute. That means they're not just asking the first presidency if they know. He's also acknowledging that they went into the quorum of the 12 and the other presiding quorums of the church to check if anybody else knew too. Yes, including Joseph Fielding Smith. It's a conspiracy cover-up of the magnitude of, of, I don't even know, right? What is it? What, 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 what were you saying it's kind of uh, in comparison to? Well, it's just sort of like Watergate, you know? Watergate, where um, the cover-up was much worse, at least for yeah. President Nixon, than the actual uh, burglary at the Watergate Hotel. Yeah. Uh, but, he, but he says, from the personal knowledge of some of us, from the uniform, that means it's consistent in common recollection of the presiding quorums of the church, from the absence in the church archives of any evidence whatsoever justifying any belief that such a revelation was given, we are justified in affirming that no such a revelation exists. In lieu of the 1911 trial being the president of the church's son, who's also an apostle, in lieu of all the men in that room in their various ages, the five that lived on, I'm, I'm speaking of, in lieu of the fact that they couldn't get this plural marriage monkey off their back for the next 20 something years, that they felt a need to release this first presidency statement. What do you think, RFM, is the statistical chance that all five men just happened to forget about the document? Can I tell you something? Zero. Yeah, it would this, be a statistical absurdity. This is a cover up. You're not going to forget excommunicating the son of the third president of the church and him bringing out the revelation, which apparently, according to some of the people present, including Anthony Ivins, who signed off on this first presidency statement in uh, 1933, he was already aware of it. Yeah. And you can bet your ass Joseph Fielding Smith didn't forget about it at this point. No, he didn't. <laughs> no, he didn't. So with that in mind, surely the apologists are going to deny this. They're not, they're not going to admit that the first presidency and the Quorum of the Twelve lied here. Tell us more about Brian Hale's RFM. Well, let me tell you a couple of things. First off, if you go to the church essay, if you can find it, it's even more difficult now than it was before. But if you can find it under the manifesto, it talks about the manifesto. And it has another interesting footnote. First off, in the body of the essay, it says both President John Taylor and President Wilford Woodruff felt the Lord directing them to stay the course and not renounce plural marriage. Footnote 14. Oh, let's go down to footnote 14. Uh -huh. Okay, 
So then they have a, a reference that they're citing. And then the second half of footnote 14, they actually say this. Uh, years later, <clears throat> Apostle Taylor, that's John W. Years later, Apostle Taylor presented a copy of this revelation to the 12 at his excommunication trial for continuing to perform plural marriages. Francis M. Lyman, this is still in the footnote. You got to read these footnotes, you know, in these essays. Yeah, they're important. Francis M. Lyman, president of the 12, noted in his diary entry for that day that this purported revelation was never submitted to the councils of the priesthood nor the church and was therefore not binding on the church. If authentic, footnote 14 goes on, if authentic, because we still want to hold out, you know, the possibility it's not authentic, even if it's only really theoretical at this point. If authentic, the revelation had been superseded by the manifesto which was given by revelation to President Wilfred Woodruff and was accepted by the church at General Conference. So there is an ancillary reference to the 1886 revelation in the essay on plural marriage that the church published on its website, even though it's only in a footnote. Mm -hmm. My goodness, my goodness. Um, and, and then as you were pointing out, uh, Brian Hales in his conclusion says some of the same kind of stuff. Yes. Uh, he does. And actually, after going through his very lengthy analysis, uh, he references and even quotes this 1933 First Presidency statement and seemingly chides the First Presidency for taking this particular tack on the subject. Uh, Brian Hales believes that what they should have done is just basically do the same analysis that Brian Hales did in his paper. <laughs> Yeah. And show that it doesn't necessarily mean plural marriage, you know, and all these other things. But, but uh, he suggests it was a mistake for them to deny it outright because it could be seen as a cover up by the fundamentalist groups. And then they can make the argument that if the church is covering up the existence of this revelation, which they can produce, if the church is covering up the existence of this revelation, then the church is also covering up the truth of the stories that Lauren Woolley told about the circumstances surrounding this revelation being given. So let me see here if I can find this from, um, oh, let's see, from Brian Hales. Can you say a couple of things while I'm looking for this? Oh, I found it. Brian Hales' paper on the 1886 revelation. So here's what he says. Understandably, the budding Mormon fundamentalists rallied to expose the perceived church-sponsored cover-up. <laughs> Even Brian Hales admits that basically this is a, a church cover-up. He says it's a perceived church-sponsored cover-up, but it's pretty obvious that he agrees with them. With confident gusto, polygamous leaders broadcast the reality of the 1886 revelation to any and all listeners and readers. And then he goes on in his conclusion, and he says this, the question arises as to how history might have unfolded if LDS church leaders in the early decades of the 20th century, like 1933, had simply admitted the existence of the revelation and classified it with other documents of similar origins. So Brian Hales admits that it's authentic, but he thinks the church leaders made a mistake in 1933 by denying its existence because it was a perceived cover-up. It was a cover-up. Andy's right. And I don't know if you're talking, Bill, but uh, I can't hear you. Yeah, sorry. I, I just wanted to point out, people want to point at 
you or me and they want to say you guys are anti-mormons everything you say is just lies i can't imagine a better place to go to have all this history examined deconstructed uh contextualized and talked about in an honest way that beyond what we're doing like i i think we are as honest uh, certainly more honest than those men who say they're as honest as they know how to be. I should have had that quote ready. Um, I really try hard since I started this podcast to deliver the information as accurately and with as much solid context as possible. And I think you're even better than me at doing it. Well, thank you. Praise yeah. from Caesar. So to I, what gets old is this idea that you and I are the liars. You and I are the deceivers. When in reality, the leaders of the church, it can be demonstrated over and over and over again. Um, you did an episode early on based on Elder Ballard's talk where you talked about how the church had had hidden history on multiple occasions. Right. Um, if we go back and listen to Mormon discussion or Radio Free Mormon or Mormonism Live or Jonathan Streeter thoughts on things and stuff or go watch Nemo across the ocean – what you come to find out is when you really understand the church's history, it is those top 15 men who are lying all the time. In fact, it's to the point where I'm pretty confident if they're moving their lips, they're lying, right? You've got Elder Holland telling stories that he's had to retract. You've got him uh, embellishing double-digit state creation. You've got President Nelson talking about a plane on fire that we, that we, uh, that we showed that wasn't a true story. Um, it is over and over and over again the leaders of the church who claim to be the trusted sources are the ones who are constantly deceiving and lying to you. And if you want to keep going like, no, it's those guys, those anti-Mormon guys, they're the liars. Then, then you continue to be duped. You continue to um, accept information that isn't forthright and transparent. And, and maybe, maybe what you believe isn't accurate. Maybe these men haven't told you the truth, and maybe they've withheld a whole hell of a lot more of it than what they've given you. And, and my suggestion would be maybe read a little more and think a little more and test whether the things that we're arguing or talking about, whether these things are real and whether there is real deception and dishonesty and cover-up in the continuous 200 years history of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Yeah. I think our main problem, Bill, is that we're accurate if we were not being accurate then uh there wouldn't be really much of a problem because it would be easy to show the inaccuracies yeah but here we're dealing with uh data facts dates and documents and doing our very best to present them in a fair straightforward and honest fashion i think the problem the church has is that they have this playbook that they always go back to when they get in trouble and they open it up and play number one is uh, cover things up. Play number two is cover things up. And play number three is cover things up. Cover it up some more. And then they do have one other trick in their bag, which is this one. I think we'd also have to be honest. There may be some of these questions that there is no answer to. Yes. Those I think would be the ones we avoid. So they also avoid the questions too, right? That's their last thing they'll do if the other things don't work. Right. You remember the one we did a few, the Mormon is in live we did a few weeks ago about the rules of the game. Yeah. Five rules that I came up with that the church leaders play. And the first rule, the first rule, do you remember what that was? No, I don't. The first don't rule for leaders of the club. church. What? Don't talk about fight club. It's kind of like that. The first rule is we're going to hide things from you. Yeah. 
That's the first rule of the rules of the game that the church plays by. And then we gave all those examples. So if you want to find out the examples, go back and listen. And I I think number five is, and it's held true with me and we'll see what happens with you. If you talk about the the things that we're hiding, then we'll hide you. We'll hide you. And, uh, and they, they try to do a good job of that, but our reach continues to increase. So we'll see, uh, we'll see how that goes. One, one entity's membership and following is going down and the other one's membership and following is going up. Maybe we are the stone cut out of a mountain without hands. Oh, I like it. Pretty yeah. soon we can institute tithing among our listeners. Um, anything else on this issue that we need to hit on before we go to take some phone calls? No, sure. That's no, no. I think we made a great point. This is like another smoking gun in the growing and very long list of times when LDS church leadership has covered things up and been less than truthful with its members in order to serve the interests of the church. Yeah. And I want to give Jared has made a bunch of comments and he's tried to justify the dishonesty. And I just want to note, and I'm hoping maybe a call come in here in a second. And if it does, I'll, I'll try to keep talking and put it on uh, mute for a second. But um, Jared keeps trying to be in defense of these guys. Like, hey, sometimes it's necessary to lie. Jared, I, if you're out there still listening, and I see you still making comments. So I'm hoping you'll answer this and I hope you'll answer it honesty. Hi, Jared. Uh, honestly, Jared, is Elder Ballard accurate? When he says that he knows the leaders of the church and he knows the presiding quorums and there's never been an attempt on anybody's part to hide anything. And Jared, I'd like you to answer that honestly, and I would be happy to put your answer up on the screen and we'll see if when things get tough, if we can sit and have that kind of conversation. Uh, Really well put. Jared's comment, sometimes the truth isn't useful, which he made. He says, Bill, sometimes the truth isn't useful. Well. I mean, theoretically, you'd come up with instances where that's obviously true. My concern with that statement is that has been the slogan of dictators. Every dictator in the history of the world has subscribed to that. Yeah, perfect. So Logan's answer is, I think the church should face all the facts and admit the errors of the past. The problem is, RFM, if they admitted all of it, then there wouldn't be much to have faith in that the church is true. Yeah, they are really in a corner that they painted themselves into. Yeah. Yep. Uh, the phone line is 435-200-3478 or 435-200-FIST. And um, it looks like I did get a call. I'm not sure why it's not coming. So I'm going to try to call one of these folks uh, back. Let's see here if this works. Uh-oh. You probably got wires plugged in everywhere. Just to try and include me in these phone calls now. Oop, that's not working. Um. I'll tell you what, do you have anything you want to add to any context of what we talked about? I'm going to try to see if I can figure out what's going on here. Well, I was just, uh, what? I was going to say that, um, uh, yeah, I think that historically speaking, that what ended up happening was that the church on the side and on the sly told these people back in the early 20th century and the late 19th century to continue to practice plural marriage. Here's the authority. Go ahead and do that. Do it individually not as a church, and the time's going to come when we can practice plural marriage again, and then we'll bring you back into the church. But that never happened, and the church ended up going in a much more uh, conservative, law-abiding way with the uh, the laws of the United States. And they kind of left the polygamists hanging out to dry. And the 1933 first presidency statement is like, boom, you're hung out to dry now. 
We told you to go out there. We told you we had your back. We told you we'd bring you back in, even though what you're doing is we can't really be seen as supporting it. And it kind of reminded me of the Bay of Pigs back in the early 1960s. And so what the church does is it leaves the polygamists on the, the beaches of Cuba with the promise they'll show up to support them. Then they never show up and they let them get riddled with bullets and all wiped out, except the bullets aren't coming from other people. They're actually coming from the church who promises to support them in the first place. So it's not the Bay of Pigs. It's the Bay of Pulligs. The Bay, the bay of Pulligs. This these are the jokes, folks. Oh, my goodness. This is what you get when Bill has to take care of technical issues. Yeah, so it for whatever reason, there's a little glitch. Like the phone was showing the call coming up, RFM, but it wouldn't it wouldn't sh- like ring through and me be allowed to pick it up. So something's off there. But regardless, um, uh, Brandon's on the line. So we're doing it the old way. Brandon's on the line. Okay. Uh, he won't be able to hear you, RFM, but you'll be able to hear him. Uh, Brandon, uh, you're on Mormonism Live with RFM and Bill Real. What's your What's your comment or question about tonight's episode? So this is more uh, speculation than anything. Um, so obviously at one point, all of these top leaders, the Apostle 70s were women members. At one point, they probably weren't aware of a lot of these... Uh, I guess, cover-ups, you could say, or I guess church secrets. Um, do you think that there are any of these top leaders who are genuinely unaware of these things going on in the background? Or, I don't know, do they have some sort of <laughs> initiation? So I, I don't know. Uh, just kind of speculation. Just wanted to see what you thought. Yeah, let me hang up with you and we'll answer, okay? Okay. To me, this goes back to the second anointing, which is we're taught early on in top leadership of the LDS Church that we that it's safe to lie, that it's okay to be dishonest about what happens or doesn't happen. Is that do you feel the same way, or do you think? Let me say it this way: I think some of these men are ignorant of church history. Um, I think that's true, um, but I also think that several of them, if not many of them, understand the data, understand the issues, and understand that they have the weaker argument, which is why they avoid the questions in the first place. Yeah, and can I say, I don't think there's any of the apostles who has as good a grasp on church history as you do, Bill. For whatever that's worth, uh, that's my take on it. I could be wrong. But um, but no, this whole secrecy that the church has, which is... Uh, made uh, what, uh, like the second anointing, right? All the secrecy that the church has. Well, there are rumors that go on and were going on at the time in 1933 that there were members in the leadership of the LDS church who were secretly practicing polygamy still and entering into plural marriages. And so I don't know if that's true. I kind of doubt that it is. The problem is we can't be sure because they do things in secret that they don't tell people about and then they cover it up. In fact, remember that fellow back in, uh, what was it, the 1950s that we talked about, about mission presidents behaving badly, but this was a missionary. He was the assistant. Right. And that's one of the things he was telling us. He was introducing polygamy to his fellow missionaries is that there are general authorities in the 1950s who are secretly practicing plural marriage. So it's okay. It just has to be done on the sly. So not only fundamentalism, but all these outbreaks of polygamy, even within the LDS church after this period are all directly traceable back to the way the church dealt with this issue and the way they created the shadow government to allow them to continue doing polygamy as individuals without the church being held responsible or sanctioning it. 
Beautiful. Second caller here is Jason. Jason, you're on the air Mormonism Live with Radio Free Mormon and Bill Real. What are your thoughts on tonight's episode? You there, Jason? Yeah, go ahead. You're on the air. Yeah, so first of all, I want to say that uh, tonight's show is the best of the best. So I don't. Looks like we lost him. Not crap. I hate it when callers get cut off in the middle of a compliment. Yeah, I'm using Google Voice for this, and I think I think another week I'll have this figured out. People will be able to hear you as well. But Jason, uh, I'm sorry because it sounded yeah. like you started off by saying you thought this program tonight was the best of the best. Yeah, I yeah I I think it's an interesting topic because at the end of the day, you can no longer after tonight's episode even make the argument that Elder Ballard is telling the truth. He may not be lying. But no, he's, he's lying. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm not supposed to say no. that. I know he is. No, he, lying, but he, he, he knows, knows not, but he's not. Let me th- let, let me rephrase that and say he knows that what he is saying is not true. He knows it, and I think we've demonstrated that on multiple episodes that he knows it, and definitely the guy sitting next to him and smirking like the cat that ate the canary while Elder Ballard is saying this, i.e., Dallin H. Oaks knows it because he's been involved in it and done it himself personally. Ooh, love it. Uh, Tim is on the air. He is caller number three. Tim, what's your thoughts for us tonight on uh, on this 1886 revelation? Well, okay. First off, technically they weren't lying when they said that it wasn't in the church archives because it was in somebody's office in their safe. That's right. And the church, you know, the church has several safes in the church office building, like the presiding bishopric has its own safe, the first presidency, the quorum of the twelve, and all the temples. And they move things around, just like when Joseph Fielding Smith had Joseph's diary and everything else in his little safe that was in his office, where the McClellan diaries were, and nobody knew about that until he died, and they opened up the safe to see what was in there. Yeah, no, I'm I'm with you. They always choose their words. I shouldn't say always, but a lot of the times they're choosing their words carefully. Um, but I do think that they word that statement in such a way that there's no ifs, ands, or buts that there are people who know and are lying in that first presidency definitely. statement from '33. Definitely, yeah. yes, yeah, definitely. Thank it's you. like when when I was was at BYU and I was doing research on my own. I worked in the BYU archives, and then I worked for farms for a while. And when I told them I was working for farms, they let me see things that I couldn't see when I was researching as a, as a normal PR. Yeah. So even yeah. who you're working for, they will or will not let you see certain documents. Yeah. You got it. The you know, Michael D. Michael Quinn and lots of other historians and scholars have been den- denied access. Stan Larson, who was doing that paper uh, on the first vision accounts and wanted access to things in the vault, uh, was told he couldn't have them. The church is always uh, keeping things away and not wanting everyone, including its own members, to know all the documents that it holds. Yeah, Mike was the, Mike and Mike was one of my teachers at the Y. And- we had this conversation one day, and he says, yeah, wasn't that interesting that when you were going for yourself, and then when you told him you're working with Jack Welch and Farms, that they let you see it? I thought, yeah. okay. So, yeah. yeah. So, yep. Thank so you, my friend. Very, you're welcome. Yeah, yeah. Thank it you for the call. Episode. Yeah, thank you, my friend. Okay. Yeah, and one, one of the things that Tim brings up that I have a, a special issue with 
is that just lying is one thing, but taking the effort to couch your language in such a way to try and give the impression that one thing you're saying is what you're saying when actually you've left yourself a loophole here, that takes a lot of effort. And that's even worse than lying. That's intentionally deceiving someone while still leaving yourself an out if they catch you lying. This is Elder Holland telling the BBC interviewer that there are no penalties in the temple when he's asking about whether Mitt Romney would have taken the penalties when he went through. Remember? And the interviewer catches him. He says, but there were. And at that point, Elder Elder Holland has to go, yeah, there were. By the way, this line, this line about looking for through the records and not finding something reminded me of a much more recent use of this tactic. And this was, remember McKenna Denson, back when she was a big, big deal, back in March of 2018, when that interview that she did with uh, Joseph Bishop was leaked to the public. And the church issued a statement on March 20, March 20th, 2018. I called it up, by which I mean I Googled it and found it. And I looked through it and here it is, because part of McKenna Denson's allegation was that early on, she met with Carlos Acey, Elder Carlos Acey, about the issue. And she told him about it, right? Well, in response to that, in this church statement, it says this. We have no record of an interview between Elder Carlos E. Acey and this individual. It sounds kind of like the 1933 First Presidency Statement, doesn't it? Especially when we know all the other details and uh, there are other things that point to Acey having met with her. Yeah. And the whole deal is this. It's very easy to tell the truth. All you do is remove the record from where you're looking and then go look for it. and You can't find it. So now what? You're telling the truth. Is that really what the truth is when it's being told by apostles of Jesus Christ? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Things get fuzzy fast and furious. Uh, Our final caller for the night, one of our female listeners, I believe. Well, wait a second. Wait a second. I want you to introduce this person. But where's Jared? Where's Jared? I thought Jared was going to call. Jared Jared never calls. Jared isn't going to do that. Jared's not going to sit down for 10 minutes, more or less two hours and hash out these things. I'm so disappointed in you, Jared. Yeah, yeah, me, yeah, me too. But I love me you too. anyway. Yeah, we like having him on the show. It's fun for the uh, for the chat. Yeah, for let's get for the other folks that follow us. And I'm sorry for interrupting this caller. Go ahead, please. Yeah, Emma, you are on the air. You're our last call for the night. It is the uh, show Mormonism Live with Radio Free Mormon and Bill Real. We just hashed out John W. Taylor's trial, the 1886 revelation, and I think my favorite word demonstrably showed that church leaders are lying on all fronts. Uh, everything is a cover-up. Um, when these guys are moving their lips, they're lying. Your thoughts tonight on tonight's episode? Oh, I think that's like the perfect statement for my question. Um, so it seems like there's been a shift in Mormonism Live and a lot of the podcasters that I've listened to in like sort of the ex-Mormon or post-Mormon circles, a shift from kind of like this um, I guess uh, good thought for like the Mormon leaders, like kind of giving them the benefit of the doubt to shift into saying that they're lying. And it's not that I don't necessarily agree with that, but I was just wondering, has there been like particular events that have led to that shift in kind of the tone of Mormonism life? 
Yeah, love it. Thank you very much. Yes, uh, Emma, I think if you'll notice and pay close attention, you'll find out that the tone hasn't shifted so much as the fact that this is a common theme of Bill Reels and something that I don't tend to say, at least not in those words. Yeah, you tend to be a softer voice than me. I tend to be a little harsher. You're the good cop. I'm the bad cop. But um, I will tell you this. I used to be very soft. If people go back to the first 300 episodes of Mormon discussion, I was trying to make it work, and I wanted to believe, and I wanted this stuff to add up. But what happens is if you're lied to and deceived over and over and over and over again, and you keep giving these men the benefit of the doubt, you know, fool me once, shame on me, fool me, or fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me. It's that kind of thing. I just got tired of it. And it's to the point now where uh, RFM, when you and I uh, heard the story from Elder Holland about the missionary going and finding his brother on a mission, you and I talked behind the scenes and we knew immediately something was wrong with that story. It was too far fetched. That was the summer of 2017. And you and I started talking um, in the blogger knackle or out in social media about the fact that we knew this thing just didn't feel right. And suddenly after that story had been told for about a decade by multiple general authorities, Elder Holland gives the bullshit excuse that the family came forward. That's not what happened. What happened was you and I and a few other people started talking about this story and starting to put the details together. This, po this couldn't possibly add up. And the story got pulled. Well, let me give you the other side of that since I'm on the other side of the screen. Yeah. Um, I think it's, I, I, I've got to say, I think it's quite likely that the family did come forward because when he gave this talk, which was to a bunch of newly called mission presidents and recites this story, the greatest missionary story ever told is how it was built. It didn't stay private like it had in prior uh, tellings, either by himself or by other people. And I can't remember exactly who it was, if it was Elder Gay, it might have been Elder Gay that he stole it or that he borrowed the story from. And uh, but then it got published. Remember, it got published in the Deseret News, this story. So now it's available to the public. And apparently members of the family read about it. They, they now find out for the first time. I mean, this is believable. And they they don't go to the press. They call up Elder Holland's office and say, you know, we got some good news and some bad news for you. The good news is, is that uh, part of the story that you told is correct. The bad news is that all the miraculous parts of it never happened. Yeah. And so at that point, whatever said in this phone call, and I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall to listen to that phone call, believe you me, Elder Holland comes out with a retraction. And actually, he doesn't come out with a retraction because he's very busy giving BBC interviews and things like that. Instead, he designates his mouthpiece. Even the mouthpieces have mouthpieces around the LDS church. He has someone else issue the retraction for him. And, uh, and then we... But, but definitely, you are correct, Sa, that there was a great deal of discussion, you, me, others, about this story just really doesn't sound like it's something that really happened. And then he yeah, comes out with remember, the... If you remember, yeah. Scott Lloyd, the great journalist over at Deseret uh, News, yes. the one who covered that story, yes. and Scott oh. Lloyd some, somehow failed to do his journalistic duty and just assumes whenever church leaders are talking that they're telling the truth. Yes, exactly. He didn't do a whole lot of investigative journalism on that. I think he was too busy polishing his Pulitzer Prizes. <laughs> that was Radio Free Mormon, by the way, episode number 18, uh, Make Way for Dodos. 
Uh, so wow. you can find that on the RadioFreeMormon.org website. Um, an oldie but a goodie. It is an oldie. It, it was a follow-up to uh, Radio Free Mormon Wrong Roads, which was the very – like I knew you were good. That was the moment I knew you were great. And my wife my, and myself and one of my daughters, we listened to that episode about three times in a one-week period, and we just laughed and laughed and laughed. It oh, thank so you so good. much. Yeah. Thank you so much. I really, really uh, appreciate it. You're welcome. Um, anything else for tonight's episode? No, just hopefully Jared will be able to get uh, into a place where he's got like some, you know, a signal for his phone. Yeah. So he can call in because I picture him out in the middle of the Sonora Desert or something, leaning yeah. up against a cactus. And he can't. Well, he, he should be able to call in if he can watch the show. You think he'd be able to call in. You would. But think maybe so. not. Maybe not. Maybe not. So with that, we'll finish with that one quote just one more time. There's this idea that the church is hiding something, that, which we would have to say as two apostles who have covered the world and know the history of the church and know the integrity of the first presidency in the corner of the 12 from the beginning of time, there has been no attempt on the part in any way of the church leaders trying to hide anything from anybody.